We're told that the stories in the Bible are literally true. These people lived and they actually factually did all these things. We grow up being taught this and as adults, we just accept it. I'm sorry, by the time you guys got around to making that movie, you had to have some inkling that this wasn't the best information that was out there. Moses can really be looked at as an amalgam of a lot of people, but clearly with origins that are much older than the account in the Hebrew Bible. The deluge myths in the Gilgamesh epic and in the book of Genesis are so similar that many scholars say that there is no way, no way, that the biblical account could possibly be thought of as unique. Was there an astrological angle to the story of Jesus, or is it just that when you start the story of Jesus at the third roar of the MGM lion and hit play on the CD, it just sort of comes together? Welcome to Unbound podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And And it's it's time to get unbound. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun, Ecclesiastes 1.9. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And tonight we are tackling the subject of biblical stories with origins and ties to other much older stories. And I'm going to just say it right out. I'm giving you as much of a no zeitgeist guarantee as I can, (laughs) but... Even as I was going through researching this and understanding just how much bad information there was in that movie, and I'll get into the whys and wherefores of that in a minute, but just understanding how much bad information was passed on by that movie, I still managed to put things in my notes that I went back and vetted and re-vetted and figured out, you know what, this sounded familiar because I heard it there first, so I had better check this out. And a lot of the stuff that I came up with, I had to go back in and remove bullet points and relook because there's some really bad information about this out there. But it's also important to understand that there is a lot in the Bible that is far from original. And if that's the case, how do we get around this whole notion of it being the all authoritative word of God Mm. and containing nothing but truth and containing nothing but literal stories of literal people who literally did these things? Well, we're going to show you one more way tonight how that's just flat out not true. But before we get into any of that... It's anti-Semitism week on Christians behaving badly. Jesus, I'm just reading through your notes on this. And boy, there's a lot of Jew bashing going on out there right now, isn't there? For whatever reason, there is. And it seems kind of weird that it's a thing. I just don't understand why it's a thing. I don't quite grasp the timeliness of it. Like right now. Right. They've got so much other stuff to sink their teeth into, but they keep coming back to the Jew bashing. Right. That's that's what it looks like. So yeah. what's your first story? Well, pundit and anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist Rick Wiles has spent the better part of two years spreading lies and disinformation about the COVID virus. Because of course he has. Of course he has. He used his True News broadcast to spread his conspiracy theories, calling it a judgment from God as we enter the last days. True News. True True News. news. Oh, my God. 
I just can't even with that. Okay. I know. All right. And when a pro LGBT lawyer died of the virus, it was clearly a punishment from God. Because of course it was. Because of course it was. When an outbreak occurred at a synagogue in Israel in the same month, Wiles was quick to assert that it was a punishment from God. God is spreading it in your synagogues, Wiles bellowed. You are under judgment because you oppose his son, Jesus Christ. That is why you have a plague in your synagogues. More of that evangelical love. Yes, it's, it's I, just... I can just feel it oozing off of him. Yes. He said Bill Gates was using the vaccine to impose the mark of the beast upon people and that Dr. Anthony Fauci should be tortured until he confesses that he helped create the virus. When a massive indoor Orthodox Jewish wedding took place in New York City, violating every imaginable health restriction, Wiles said he was going to pay the $15,000 fine on their behalf. He said the vaccines were part of a genocidal plot, but that was fine since stupid people will be killed off. And this is a quote from Right Wing Watch. I am not going to be vaccinated, Wiles said in May 2021. I'm going to be one of the survivors. I'm going to survive the genocide. The only good thing that will come out of this is a lot of stupid people will be killed off. If the vaccine wipes out a lot of stupid people, well, we'll have a better world. I'm going to survive. I'm going to survive by God's grace. By his will, I'm going to survive the genocide. And the funny thing is, he talks about the vaccine the way that I talk about anti-vaxxers. Yes. How it's just going to be a shit show of social Darwinism. Yeah. When people are still going out in public. This thing is still out there, people. It's yeah. still out there. Oh, yes. Okay? So... You're going out there masquerading as someone who is fully vaccinated so you don't have to mask up. Well, what happens when y'all start catching it from each other? Oh, funny you should say That's the way that that I'm looking at that. Yeah, funny you should say that. I think the Bible might have a thing to say about his opinion. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16, 18. And wouldn't you know it? Yep, there it is. Whoop, there it is. Whoop, there it is. And wouldn't you know it, his broadcast was suddenly canceled last week. There was an announcement saying there had been a run of flu and COVID sickness running throughout the employees of True News. So flu and COVID. And COVID. I want to know how many were flu and how many were COVID. Let's see some real numbers here. Yeah, I know, right? You're saying it's flu and COVID? Okay. Who got the flu? Who Who got got COVID? COVID? And go. (laughs) And now it turns out that Rick Wiles and his wife both have COVID and he's in the hospital in serious condition. And I'm just, yeah. There are so many things that make me wish I could still believe in karma. I know, right? Because, I mean, there, there are quote unquote evidences out there of a lot of things that aren't true. But karma is one of those things where there, there are shocking number of things that happen from time to time that could lead you to believe that it's a real thing but of course there's also the aspect of you know bad people not getting their comeuppance yeah good people having really bad things happen to them so of course i know it's not true right but anytime i see something like this i kind of wish that it was i know you know i know i just wish that i could just stamp it with that and say there you go asshole karma gotcha yeah I mean, I don't want anybody to be sick from this thing. I 
I don't want anyone to catch it, but he kind of brought it on himself because he didn't get vaccinated. No, it would have been so easy. Right. Because right. he's an older gentleman. He could have just gotten the vaccination when it was open. No, he could have, but yeah. he, he chose to do this. Yes. And I may not believe in karma, but I do believe that actions have consequences. Right. Right. But, you know, if COVID-19 is a punishment from God, perhaps he should try and figure out how he pissed his God off. Yeah, for real. Seriously. For it's real. It's crazy. Yeah. I'm looking at this from the standpoint of, okay, were you really this stupid all the time? Did you really honestly believe the words that were coming out of your mouth? Or did you just think that there was more money in yeah. tickling people's ears? Was it in your mind that something like this could happen to you? Because, I mean, and I know, even as the words are coming out of my mouth, I know that yeah. there are still plenty of people out there who will tell you right now that this thing is a hoax. Oh, yeah. Because it hasn't touched them. Right. And, and they even believe if it, it. Even if it does, they think that they're dying for some other reason. They think they were made sick by something. Right. Even if they go to a hospital and they're right. told that they have this. I, you know, I went through this phase when I was younger where I believed that I could make myself well by simply confessing that I wasn't sick. I would get sick and I would tell myself, this is a lie of the devil. It's yeah. a lie of the devil. It's oh, a lie yeah. of the devil until I started feeling better. And lo and behold, after a week of the flu and telling myself it was a lie of the devil, the flu went away. Yeah, it's amazing how that After happens. just a week or so. Just a you know, week. So, obviously, I get the thinking yeah. behind this. But it's just, it's rage-inducing when you think about how this person spent all this time vilifying the cure and downplaying the illness. You know, I have a hard time feeling bad for him. And yeah. no, I don't like the idea of anyone dying for any no. reason either. I don't think that I'm not going to sit here and, and take pleasure in yeah. this person's pain. But what the fuck did you expect? Yeah, seriously. That's where I'm at with it. What exactly were you expecting here? And am I supposed to feel bad for you after you spent however much time it was Telling people that, you know, this whole thing is a hoax, it's a lie of the devil, you can pray your way out of it, it's right. not going to happen to you, and now it happens to their leader. You know, these are the types of things that get certain people with at least a little bit of capacity for rational thought to start thinking outside the confines of their religion. And I really do hope that if anything good does come out of this, that it made some of his uh, adherents, some of his fans, mm. think a little bit more about this and think just a little bit more realistically about oh, it. Oh, yeah. Well, one would hope. Mm -hmm. One would hope. And further, what did you expect, news? Mm -hmm. You know, the world is a great place sometimes, lots of creative people, but sometimes ideas should stay in your head. Oh, there are plenty of those that yeah. run through my head like on a daily basis i oh, know yeah. i know Gigi gaskins the 60 year old proprietor of a hat store in nashville tennessee has come under fire for her not vaccinated patches in the shape and size of a nazi style star of david you know this woman is in my mind something that rhymes with something that you do to a football 
And I don't mean pass. I know. I okay. know. No, this is probably the most rage-inducing story I've seen yeah. in this segment yet. And I've seen the pictures of them. They're fucking real. Yeah, they are. They're they're, they're absolutely they're real. No longer, they're no longer for sale. It, it doesn't matter. She put it they out entered there. The universe. Yeah, at I know. some point these things were part of the human existence. I don't care if it was for five minutes, five days, or five seconds. The simple fact that she did this yeah. and was proud of it is rage inducing. I know. It's crazy. She had posted herself wearing the patch on her store's Instagram page amid other disinformation about the COVID vaccine and far-right and pro-Trump conspiracy theories. The original post said they came out great, offering trucker caps soon. Oh, for fuck's sake. Are you kidding me? Well, I suppose that they put the kibosh on that, too. Yeah, they did. Her store is shut. Well, good. Yeah. Good. That shit had to go. Yeah, it did. Soon, people were protesting outside her business, commenting on her posts before she turned off comments. Because, of course, she did. Because, of course, she How did. How many times am I going to say that in one episode? I kind of wish we could have a, t- a counter, you or know? a drinking game. There's so many things that you could base a drinking because game on. Because, of, of course, her. she did count 16, you know, or There whatever. you go. And vendors like Stetson Apparel were pulling their merchandise out of her store. She tried apologizing in that non-apology way. I'm sorry you were offended. She even sought out her Jewish friend, and he wasn't offended at all. The more she tried to defend herself, the worse the backlash got. There's two things here that I want to address. Number one is the nature of an apology. Yeah. Um, An apology stops with, I'm sorry. Yes. Okay? And not, I'm sorry you were offended. Try, I'm sorry I offended you. That's an apology. Yeah. This is just passive-aggressive bullshit. Yeah. I'm sorry you were offended. Like, I didn't mean to do it. And then there's this nebulous, well, I have a Jewish friend and he He wasn't wasn't offended offended at all. all. You know, I, okay, again, show me proof. I'd like to hear from this Jewish friend. Hi, I'm Gigi Gaskin's Jewish friend and I wasn't offended at all. And I'm also not a paid spokesperson for anything, I swear. Yeah, <laughs> right. I, I, I could see it. I know. Unfortunately, this isn't the first time she has used Holocaust imagery to get her views across. Gaskins has drawn several comparisons between vaccines, mask mandates, and other COVID-19 restrictions, and the Nazis since the start of the coronavirus pandemic. That is utterly nefarious. It is. It's terrible. In January 2020, she posted a photo of Jewish people being put onto a train car in Nazi Germany and wrote in the caption, Is this where it ends? Because dozens of people on here said, This is what I deserve. Where does this end? Because it's not ending on the 20th. Oh, good Lord. the, The... Comparison. Talk about comparing apples to particle accelerators. Yes, I this know. This is just, this it's, is it's, bad shit. It is crazy. She's like a walking Godwin's law. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to make matters even more concerning, she attended the pro-Trump rally in Washington, D.C. on January 6th that preceded the riot and invasion of the Capitol building by Trump supporters. She posted a photo of the crowd, but there is no evidence that she went into the Capitol. She wrote on Instagram, Welcome to Communist America. 
They keep taking this photo down. Yes, I took this picture and I was proud to stand there. So she was there. She was in Washington, D.C., but there's no evidence that she was actually in the Capitol building. Doesn't matter. She was with the she mob. She was with them when she was with the mob. At Guilt least by when association, she would... bitch. Yeah, I know. I hear it. And yeah, having read some of her opinions and views, I can believe that she actually was there somewhere in that crowd. Oh yeah, no doubt. I mean, she didn't she just admit it? With that picture? I mean, granted, anyone could have taken the picture and she could be taking credit for it. But that's a hell of a thing to be taking credit for. I know, And admitting to being at least on the sidelines of involved in. Yes. As of May 29th, her store has closed due to protests. It takes a special type of stupid to think belittling the Holocaust wouldn't come back to bite her in the ass. But it's the same signature arrogance that you see throughout evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. These people feel like they have the right to say whatever the fuck they want, whenever the fuck they want, about whoever the fuck they want. And it's just not that way. They're learning. Well, they're being taught. I'm I'm not even going to say they're learning. But they're being taught. And we're going to keep teaching them. Because they need to learn. And if they're not going to learn then the people that they're trying to influence need to hear the other side, which is precisely why we're here. And that is a wonderful segue into letting you know that our Patreon is up at patreon.com slash Unbound Podcast Network. And we can really, really use your help and support. If you have a fiver you can send our way, we will absolutely positively use it to help more people get and stay unbound. That is the entire purpose of this to draw people's thinking away from the bullshit that you just heard and toward things that actually will benefit them as human beings. This show, I think, is a really, really good example of that. And I think that we do a really, really good job of conveying the messaging here. And I think that we do it responsibly. And I think that we do it in a manner that does provide a really, really good counterpoint to the things that they want to teach you and they want you to continue believing. So if you agree patreon.com slash unbound podcast network toss us a fiver and let us know that you're behind us and if you flat out can't afford that then just keep coming back week after week tell someone new about the show this week give us a few five-star ratings likes shares reviews if you can leave us a review then by all means take a couple of minutes to do that there are plenty of things that you can do to help us spur this thing along without ever spending a penny also our youtube channel go ahead and just just sub up on YouTube so that we start getting um, a little bit better ranking. Right. And yeah, watching, quote unquote, watching some of the videos wouldn't hurt either. But I get not wanting to sit there and just watch an audio and just just watch static audio for an hour, an hour and a half. I totally get that. But it's another way that we can reach more people. And when you go into YouTube and take a look at the way that I have the episode set up, there are always links to external downloads so that they can get the episode wherever they get their podcasts. And that's just one other point. Anywhere you get your podcast, you can find us at this point. I haven't found a platform, at least not a major platform yet, that we are not part of, that we wouldn't have to pay to be on. So that means iHeartRadio and Stitcher and Spotify, we're on all of them. So all you have to do is search Unbound Podcast Network, and you're going to find us anywhere you get your podcasts. 
let people know, and especially like and share the content on social media. If you're in the middle of a conversation with someone and you know that we talked about something in a past episode that is relevant to that conversation, link out to it because it does turn into multiple downloads. I've seen it happen a bunch of times when I've tried this. Link out to an episode, make sure that it's relevant to the conversation. People will listen. Just let them know that we're here. And easiest way to do that is to link out. So those are just some other things that you can do if the coffers aren't quite full enough to think about supporting us financially at this point. We appreciate all of our listeners. We appreciate you coming back week after week. Just keep doing what you're doing. And please, if you do have the means to help us out, please consider heading over to patreon.com slash unbound podcast network right now and make that $5 commitment. You'll be glad you did. And we'll be able to do more with the show going forward if you do. And also, one last quick announcement before we get into the meat of our episode tonight. We are taking next week off. We already know this. I am taking my lovely bride of 28 years on a short trip up to Maine. And it's going to take up most of the beginning half of next week, which is going to make it real difficult for me to do any research or plan to record an episode next week. So we will be up in Maine celebrating 28 years of Mowage. Mowage. And we're going to be having a really, really good time. And we will be back in two weeks with some more great content for you. For now, let's get right into the meat of this week's episode. So we're talking about those biblical stories that have origins and ties to much older stories. And I brought up the movie Zeitgeist in the beginning, and I want to say a little bit about this, because for good or for bad, this movie really was responsible for some of my first steps out of evangelical Christianity. It sucks that so much of it is fabricated, but at least it got me thinking that perhaps, perhaps there might be something that's not right about this whole notion of the Bible being the quote-unquote word of God. I would have liked to have not been lied to outright, because that is what they do in this movie to make their point. But for good or for bad, it started steering my thoughts in the direction of atheism. And fortunately, part of that process also involved seeking out proof and seeking the truth wherever it leads. So that was when I started becoming curious as to how accurate the information was that I was getting from this movie. And in the course of that research, I discovered that their accounting of things was fraught with embellishments and flat-out lies. So why did it work so easily and so quickly on this little evangelical boy? Well, there's a reason for that. We are conditioned as evangelicals. I've gone through this before, I'm pretty sure, in in another episode. We are... Oh, we did an entire episode on conspiracy theory. So we are conditioned as evangelicals to think in terms of conspiracy. This is how we're taught to think from the pulpit about anything that they are anti. So it really shouldn't have surprised. Well, at the time, of course, it, it was surprising how easily my opinions could be swayed on this. But in retrospect, it really isn't all that surprising because I've spent a lot of time since then thinking about and analyzing the way that I used to think and the way that evangelicals in general think and the way that messaging is delivered from the pulpit. 
And it really wasn't difficult for Peter Joseph and the likes of the people who were involved in Zeitgeist to come up with a way of speaking directly to the people that they wanted to convince. And that was largely evangelicals and some atheists who don't know better than to go out and vet the stuff that they're told. But by and large, they wanted us, and by us I mean those of us who were evangelical at the time, they wanted our attention, pure and simple. That was their entire goal with the way that they presented this. They wanted our attention, and they presented it in a way that we were likely to listen to, and some of us did. The problem is in the sources of the information that they used. They weren't telling out-and-out lies. They actually researched the stuff that they reported on, but that research, I believe, was also fraught with confirmation bias. And we've talked about that before, how you go out researching something and looking specifically for things that you'll agree with. And I think that I even fell into this trap while I was going through some of these notes and making notes on some of the stuff that I found. And little by little, it started, um, it started registering with me that not only have you heard this stuff before, but you know where. So you better get out there and vet it because you know how much of that shit wasn't true. So when they put this movie together, I honestly don't think that they were as deceptive as they came across. They were just using sources that had things in them that they liked mm. and unfortunately just didn't go far enough with the research. But the vast majority of what's in this movie comes from a book called The Christ Conspiracy, The Greatest Story Ever Sold by Akira S. That's the only name the author wishes to give. And she does have a couple of other pen names, but who knows who she actually is or if she even is a she. But I'm pretty sure that the first part of Zeitgeist was also called this, The Greatest Story Ever Sold. Yeah. So there was some level of cahoots there. They, they were giving credit where it was due. And then, of course, there's the whole astrology angle, which, at a first glance, it sure does look that way. And it very well could have been that way, but it also could have been that this was the way a lot of stories were told back then, that they had tie-ins to astrology and to the Zodiac and all of that. And I don't really have a problem with that because some of these concepts are incredibly old and even predate the earliest stories that we're going to get into in a little while. So the whole astrology angle with Jesus, is it possible? Yeah, you know what? I think it could be. I just don't think that it necessarily is. It's sort of like when you take The Wizard of Oz and play Dark Side of the Moon. <laughs> yeah. And there's all these parallels. It's impossible for that to have been intentional. Right. But in certain contexts and when viewed from a certain angle and from a certain synchronicity... Mm -hmm. You start seeing shit. Yeah. So was there an astrological angle to the story of Jesus? Or is it just that when you when you start the story of Jesus at the third roar of the MGM lion <laughs> and hit play on the CD, it just sort of comes together? I kind of look at this in the same way. Yeah. The synchronicity with the Jesus story and the Zodiac happens to be synced up with the last roar of the lion. Yeah. That's pretty much it. There you go. So 
I don't want to spend the entire show on Zeitgeist because, you know, as much as I feel like I owe them one for getting me to start thinking in a certain way, fuck you for being so flat-out dishonest. And I'm sorry, by the time you guys got around to making that movie, you had to have some inkling that this wasn't the best information that was out there. But it agreed with you, so you used it. And honestly, there is so much there that is legit that you could draw on. This was just, it was underhanded and it was wrong. And I don't care what the outcome is. I don't care that it started me on the road to atheism. Any kind of deception is wrong. And wherever it leads, I don't care if it's good, bad, or anything in between, there are better ways to get there. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Now let's start looking at some of these parallels, starting right in the book of Genesis, specifically at the fall of humankind that begins in Genesis chapter 3. Eve eats from the tree of knowledge, which God forbade her to do, which is how sin entered humanity and with it the power of evil, according to the first book of the Bible. The messaging here is similar to the myth of Pandora's box. I never even thought about this yeah, until I started researching it, but it's true. Mm-hmm. Pandora, according to Greek mythology, was created by the gods in their image and likeness. Sound familiar? Or she was at least an amalgam of all the gods and goddesses. Pandora opens a box that she is told not to, just like Eve eating the forbidden fruit in Genesis 3. Once Pandora opens the box, evil enters the world. So both stories have the parallel of a woman being disobedient. Mm. Both Pandora and Eve are depicted as being curious and tempted by the forbidden thing. Both the Greek myth and the account in Genesis communicate the idea of original sin through their respective tales. And that whole business of a woman's disobedience is also pointed to as the cause of sin, sickness, and disease being in the world. Oh, and there were plenty of Jews in ancient Greece. Let's just make sure that mm. uh, that we understand this, okay? There was a large Jewish presence in Greece around the time that these stories started circulating. There is no way any story based on Greek myth would have gone unnoticed by the Jews And the timeline of the Bible lines up nicely with the period where Jews and Jewish cultural influence can be pinpointed by history. And just so that we're clear, all of the uh, the sources for this are linked in the show notes. I'm just not going to stop every single time and say, this is from here, this is from there. But all of this has been amply and duly researched. Everything is in the show notes. The show notes will be available when the episode drops on Sunday. So feel free to look any of this up for yourself. It's all out there. But the whole story of the creation and fall of humankind goes back even further. Let's take a look at the Gilgamesh epic. For those not in the know, the epic of Gilgamesh is an epic Mesopotamian poem. It is among the earliest known works of literature dating back to the 18th century BCE, And there's an Adam and Eve parallel in this document as well. The story of Enkidu and Shammat also tells of a man being created from dirt by a god and sent to live among the animals. Now, in Genesis, Adam is charged with naming all the animals. Enkidu is introduced to Shammat, the temple prostitute of Haramtu, who is sent to seduce him in the hopes of civilizing him. He's living among the animals. So naming the animals, Adam kind of had to be among the animals to do that. So there's a tie-in for you right there. Now, 
the whole business with Enkidu is that he just wasn't civilized. So this prostitute is sent to him to civilize him. I'm not sure how you civilize a man by appealing to his most base impulses, but, you know, that's just me. Another parallel, although a smaller piece of the story than Adam and Eve, involves Enkidu realizing he's naked and being given covering by Shamat. Apparently, this happens on the heels of Enkidu tasting beer and bread for the first time. So I think there's that end of innocence aspect to it that I believe is going on in the Garden of Eden also. The process of becoming civilized culminates with the animals turning their backs on Enkidu because they're resentful of the changes that he's undergone. He's just a little bit too human-like and not feral enough for them anymore. So they basically turn their back on him in much the same way that Adam and Eve started growing up intellectually and they weren't welcome in the garden anymore because daddy wasn't happy with the fact that they were growing up. Right. So the notion of snakes is also interesting here because, of course, it's the serpent that tempts Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. But the notion of snakes being evil tricksters also originates with the Gilgamesh epic. In both Gilgamesh and the Bible, it's a snake that is ultimately responsible for evil being in the world. In the Bible, he influences Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. In Gilgamesh, a snake steals a plant from Gilgamesh that gives it immortality, and that ascension of power in a serpent is interpreted as the advancement of evil in humanity and the world at large. So there's one right there in the very beginning of the book. And there's more just in Genesis. Let's talk about the flood. And you know what? If you've been atheist for more than five minutes, you've probably already heard this one ad nauseum. But just sit back and, and let the new kids soak this one in, okay? Mm. That's interesting pun talking about the flood. Um, the deluge myths in the Gilgamesh epic and in the book of Genesis are so similar that many scholars say that there is no way, no way, that the biblical account could possibly be thought of as unique. This is, the Gilgamesh epic is where this story comes from, period. And there is so much overwhelming evidence for this. I don't feel bad at all just making that bold and very direct statement that this is the origin of this story, period. This is a quote from an article on samwolf.com. It's basically just a blog site, but it's got some good information. I was able to vet the vast majority of it and also vet away a little bit of it because that yeah. happens too. Yeah. But let's take just a look at this quote from that article. Andrew R. George, a translator of the Gilgamesh epic. I'm having a hard time getting that word out. Gilgamesh epic argues that the flood story in Genesis 6 through 8 closely matches the Gilgamesh flood myth in such a way that Genesis must have been derived from it. As Andrews notes, the Genesis flood story follows the Gilgamesh flood story, quote, point by point and in the same order. In the epic, the god Ea warns, and here I go, I'm going to get these names back in my mouth here. I've, I've spent so much time trying to just practice them over and over. And here we are, I'm behind the mic and still going, okay. Utnapishtim. I think I got it. I think I got it. In the epic, the god Ear warns Utnapishtim of a great flood and tells him to build a large boat that is capable of saving all living things. Just like Noah, Utnapishtim builds his boat, puts two of every animal and his family on it, and then comes the great storm. 
When the rain stops, he offers a sacrifice to Ea and even sends out a bird to find signs of dry land, point by point and in the same order. And another quick quote, Flood stories have been found in many texts which predate the Bible. It's found in the Epic of Zeusudra and the Epic of Atherhasis, which is nearly identical to the Epic of Gilgamesh. So there's lots of plagiarizing going on back then. In Hindu mythology, texts like the Satapta Brahmana mentions a great flood in which Vishnu advises Manu to build a giant boat. And incidentally, Manu was one of the ones that Zeitgeist wanted us to believe was based on Moses. <laughs> okay. Uh, it, it's possible, but not likely. Um, a little bit more from the Gilgamesh epic, and another quick quote. It is generally agreed that the Epic of Gilgamesh has, to some extent, had cultural contact with the biblical book of Ecclesiastes. The nature and extent of this contact remain contested areas of scholarly discussion. Arguably, the most overt connection between the two works of literature is in the advice given to Gilgamesh by Siduri and in the advice given by Coeleth in Ecclesiastes 9. The two passages are quoted below. First, First, the Gilgamesh passage. You, Gilgamesh, let your belly be full. Keep enjoying yourself day and night. Every day make merry. Dance and play day and night. Let your clothes be clean. Let your head be washed, and may you be bathed in water. Gaze on the little one who holds your hand. Let your wife enjoy your repeated embrace. Such is the destiny of mortal men. And now, Ecclesiastes 9, 7 through 9. Go. Eat your bread with enjoyment and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has long ago approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Do not let oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that are given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and your toil at which you toil under the sun. So lots and lots of similarities there to the point where it's another one of those instances where it's very difficult to say one didn't come from the other. And there's more. There's a bit more in the Gilgamesh epic, but it steers more in the way of apocryphal works, pseudepigraphal works, stuff that showed up in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Let's just say that it was popular source material. Mm. And in the world of copywriting, this would be called rewriting. And I've been called upon to rewrite articles before. And fun fact, I've been called upon to rewrite some of my own articles before. <laughs> I've had the, the client say, okay, here's the source material, and we need you to rewrite this. And it was something that I wrote like two or three years earlier. Not even kidding. It's happened more than once. <laughs> yeah. A lot of my stuff is out there. You just wouldn't know because it's all ghostwritten. Mostly it's, it's under other people's names, but it's out there. But I want to steer away from the Gilgamesh epic at this point and look at at another big player in Old Testament lore and some of his possible origins. And this is another one that Zeitgeist cited as a direct fabrication of a lot of different stories. But we're talking about the story of Moses. The biggest parallel that's out there is one that I don't even think that Zeitgeist even bothered to, to delve into. And that is the similarity between Moses and Krishna. It could be in there. It's been a long time since I've seen it. But I do remember the other ones that they cited and the reasons why they chose them, most of them having similar sounding names. That was basically it. But I literally set out looking for this one because of the information in Zeitgeist. I wanted to see just how much 
they managed to fabricate here. And in this instance, like with almost everything else in the first half of the movie, there are facts augmented with fiction and many forced tie-ins with the way that they presented this one. They trace a line of literary lawgivers, all with similar names, Manu, Mises, Moses, etc. And yes, there are similarities, but there are also similarities in a lot of characters in a lot of fictional stories. So zeroing in on this and dragging details and meanings out of it does not mean that these were direct plagiarisms, that these were direct fabrications of the same story. But let's take a look at the parallels between Moses and Krishna. According to the biblical account, Moses was set adrift by his mother when he was three months old in a reed basket because Pharaoh had ordered the deaths of all Hebrew male babies. Krishna's uncle Kans, or Kans, K-A-N-S, also ordered all male offspring born to his sister Devki slaughtered at birth. Nice guy. Hmm. Krishna is carried across the Yamuna in a red in a reed basket, not a red basket, in a reed basket by his father in an effort to protect him from Khans. Both Moses and Krishna were separated from their mothers due to an immediate threat on their lives and both found themselves as infants floating on a river in a basket. And Moses is found by Pharaoh's daughter in the Bible. In Islam, it's his wife who takes an immediate shine to him, of course. In the biblical account, he is adopted by Pharaoh's daughter and raised in the household of Pharaoh. So Moses is raised as a family member of the person against whom he would lead a revolt that culminates with the great exodus from Egypt and the liberation of the children of Israel from slavery. Krishna was actually related to the person whom he would go on and kill, Khans, king of Mathura. He would also be heralded as the one who liberates an oppressed people from that land. Both had two mothers, the biological mother who gave them up to save their lives, and the adopted mother who had a direct tie to the respective men each would stand up to and rise up against as adults. Moses and Krishna both left the lands of their childhoods in their efforts to rescue their people from cruel and powerful rulers. Moses led his people from Sinai from where his people crossed the River Jordan. Krishna left Gokul and vanquished his uncle in Mathura. The parting of waters also plays into both stories. In Exodus, it's the parting of the Red Sea. In Krishna's story, after Khans is killed, his wife swears revenge on Krishna. Her brother waged endless wars against Krishna's adopted kingdom of Mathura, and after years of unending conflict, Krishna decides to take his people to the coast of the Arabian Sea near the delta of the Godavari. He asks the sea to give shelter to his people, and according to tradition, the sea then receded and the land revealed is modern-day Dwarka. Okay. The story of Krishna dates back to the 4th or 5th century BCE. The story of Moses? He was allegedly born in 1391 BCE, centuries after the story of Krishna entered into Hindu canon. Other lawgiver stories with similarities to Moses go back as far as the 13th century BCE. So Moses can really be looked at as an amalgam of a lot of people, but clearly with origins that are much older than the account in the Hebrew Bible. There's definitely something there, just not what Zeitgeist wants you to think. <laughs> Some also believe that the story of Dionysus has certain parallels to the story of the Exodus, but with a more hedonistic, free your mind and the rest will follow kind of vibe. 
Moses and Krishna led their people out of oppression. Dionysus led people away from their puritanical inhibitions. It's thin, but the parallel exists. And there's also a thin parallel to Jesus that we'll get into a little bit later too. Dionysus was also spared from Hera's wrath and hidden in Zeus's thigh to gestate. You know, kind of like being hidden in a basket and sent down the river. Right. The whole baby saved from slaughter scenario is playing out in this one again. And there are definitely other biblical parallels that I'll go through, you know, relatively quickly here with, with enough detail so you get the point. The Buddha is kind of a big one. The Buddha had a temptation experience just like Jesus. And this is a story that dates back to, uh, to 500 BCE. And it sort of goes like this. Prince Siddhartha Gautama lived a sheltered, privileged life until he met his subjects and learned about real human suffering. The prince vowed to discover his purpose and left his comfortable home behind to travel the land. Siddhartha eventually realized he needed a middle ground between his former self-indulgent lifestyle and the complete rejection of all worldly pleasantries. So he sat beneath a fig tree and began meditating. During this time, a demon named Mara appeared and tried tempting Siddhartha. Mara brought beautiful women to entice the young man, then tried scaring him away from his searching with scores of demons. Neither tactic worked, nor did Mara's attempt to sway Siddhartha by stroking his pride. In overcoming Mara's temptation, Siddhartha reached enlightenment and became the Buddha. So there are a lot of parallels there between the temptation of Siddhartha and the temptation of Jesus. Mm. Um, only difference here that I can see is that um, the devil didn't try and get Jesus laid. <laughs> I'd no. be interested to see what would have happened if he had tried. If the story would have been a little bit different. But, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. Jesus was fully man and fully God. That mm -hmm. tells me that he had a sex drive. So it could have been worth a shot. But that's left out. Then there's Hercules and Samson, both of which had superhuman strength, and both of whom kill a lion with their bare hands in their respective mythologies. Then there's Jonah and Saktadeva. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Saktadeva, another story borrowed from Hinduism. And another quote from the uh, from an article in Ranker.com. The story begins when Saktadeva, I'm butchering it to hell, I know, learns, learns that the princess of Vardhamanapura wishes to marry a man who has set his eyes upon the Golden City, a place no one has ever heard of or visited. This is a stopping point for me, because if no one's ever been there, how the fuck did a city get there? No one's ever visited this place, but it's there, and there it, it's like a city. Okay, whatever. So Saksadeva lies about visiting the Golden City himself, but the princess sees through his deception. So what does he do? Sets out to find it. Midway through his journey, he encounters a massive storm complete with a hurricane which sinks his vessel. Although his companion clings to a plank until another boat arrives to rescue him, a large fish swallows Saksadeva. The companion eventually manages to catch the fish, gut it, and free an unharmed Saktadeva from its stomach. Mm. So there's your tie-in with the story of Jonah. Then there's the Tower of Babel. In the 19th century, a group of Iraqis discovered ruins while digging the foundation for a garden. Years later, German engineers realized the discovery was likely the remains of Atemanaki, a grand structure many believe inspired the Bible's Tower of Babel story. But the Babylonians built the tower sometime in the 6th century BCE, 
and dedicated the 300-foot-tall building to the god Marduk, Although many attribute the destruction of the tower to the Persian king Xerxes, historians think the passage of time and the lack of upkeep provided its downfall, not the intervention of a narcissistic god. <laughs> Tales of towers and the sudden separation of languages appear in several religions and cultures. The Hindu confusion of tongues legend describes a great tree that grew tall and wide to protect people. Eventually, Brahma cursed the tree for being prideful and cut off its branches, scattering them to create differences in language. And I have to wonder if this may have, at least in part, been where the concept of Jesus cursing the fig tree came from. The outcome obviously wasn't the same because these two things happened centuries apart. Yeah. But just the whole idea of literary devices and tropes and all the things that we see over and over again, I have to wonder if there could have been some kind of parallel there, even just a thin one. An Armenian story, meanwhile, features a group of arrogant giants who build a tower ultimately toppled by God's wrath. Across the Atlantic, and I found this really interesting, across the Atlantic, a Mexican folktale describes a tower built to reach the heavens. It failed, however, after fire rained down from above and the workers suddenly began speaking different languages. So... Pretty direct. That's pretty direct. Pretty wild. Now let's talk about Abraham and Harishandra. Hinduism also includes a story about a man whose faith ultimately spared the life of his child. King Harishandra owed Vishwamitra the rights to his kingdom, so left with nothing and unable to pay his full debt to Vishwamitra, Harishandra sold his wife and son to a Brahmin and took a job at a crematorium, sold his family, and took the lowliest job in their community, in their society. And just a quick quote from the Ranker article, one day, a snake bit Harishandra's son Rohita, killing him instantly. Though devastated when his wife brought Rohita's remains to the crematorium, the former king stood true to his work and refused to accept the body without charging a fee. Since his wife had nothing, she offered her clothing as payment. Impressed by Harishandra's adherence to the rules, Vishwamitra and Vishnu decreed Harishandra and his wife fit to be gods and brought Rohita back to life. Hmm. So this guy became a god for refusing a freebie. Wow. And while we are on the subject of Hinduism, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva are a type of the Holy Trinity. And paganism, incidentally, is loaded with triple goddess imagery. So this whole idea of triune deityship does not originate with the Bible either. I found this real interesting. I had never heard about this one before. The Book of Proverbs and the Egyptian Instruction of Amenemope. In 1888, and this is another quick quote, an archaeologist obtained an ancient Egyptian papyrus for the British Museum. Researchers didn't attempt to translate it, however, until years later when they discovered the text contained many similarities to the Bible's Book of Proverbs. Scholars named the Egyptian text the Instruction of Amenemope after the supposed author who inscribed 30 wise sayings. According to historians, the text predates Proverbs, though most believe Solomon was aware of Amenemope's writings when he created his collection of wisdom. So, secondhand wisdom, <laughs> and highly plagiarized. The parallels appear between Proverbs 22.17 and 23.12, and include 
quote, do not rob the poor because they are poor or crush the afflicted at the gate. That's Proverbs 22, 22. And guard yourself from robbing the poor from being violent to the weak comes from Amenemope chapter four, verses four and five. Just a quick shot there on the book of Proverbs, not the entire book of Proverbs, but one reasonable section right. that there's just too many similarities there to say that this didn't come from this. Right. Now, oh, I've known about this one for a while, but mm-hmm. and honestly, this was one that I didn't exactly believe until I looked it up wow. and was able to verify that this is actually factually true. Let's talk about the similarities between the Ten Commandments and the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Here are the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no idols. You shall not make the name of the Lord your God in vain. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet. Those are the Ten Commandments. And here is spell 125 in the Book of the Dead, written centuries earlier. This is what is called, I believe they call it negative affirmation or negative confession. Right. Negative confession is what it is. I have not reviled the God. I have not laid violent hands on an orphan. I have not done what the God abominates. I have not killed. I have not turned anyone over to a killer. I have not caused anyone suffering. I have not copulated illicitly. I have not been unchaste. I have not increased nor diminished the measure. I have not diminished the palm. I have not encroached upon the fields. I have not added to the balance weights. I have not tempered or tampered with the plumb bob of the balance. I have not taken milk from a child's mouth. I have not driven small cattle from their herbage. I have not stopped the flow of water in its seasons. I have not built a dam against flowing water. I have not quenched a fire in its time. I have not kept cattle away from the God's property. I have not blocked the God at his processions. So you can see, especially in the first half of that, where there are loads of similarities to the point where, again, it's difficult to say that it didn't come from this. It's real difficult. Right down to the cadence of some of these quote-unquote commandments, all they did All they did was change the grammar around just a little bit, and that was it. Almost all of what you see in the Ten Commandments is also present in spell number 125 in the Book of the Dead. So now let's move along out of the Old Testament into the New, and let's talk about Jesus. For starters, Zeitgeist was right to an extent, but but they went way too far in the direction of embellishment and overstatement to be taken seriously. There are, however, a lot of parallels in the storytelling about heroes throughout history. If anything, we learn a lot about our own psychology by analyzing the similarities between the Jesus myth and some of the stories that came before it. The story of the life of Jesus, so vital to the Christian faith, is not original either. I hate to break it to you folks, but it just isn't. This is probably the story which actually has the most parallels with other religions, suggesting that the story is universal and expressed by many cultures in a similar way. Why? Because of its high levels of relatability and the fact that we are, like I've said many times before, very similar creatures as human beings. So the same messaging is going to get through to us from whatever cultural context works better for us. Carl Jung, Carl Jung, 
called these universal stories or symbols archetypes. And Joseph Campbell argued in his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, that the story of Jesus is just one way of expressing the archetypal story of the archetypal hero. Zeitgeist outlines some striking similarities between the life and death of Jesus and previous gods from other religions, such as Horus, Mithras, Attis, Krishna, Dionysus, and many others. But here's where Zeitgeist gets it wrong. In far too many of these accounts, they had some of the same bullet points. And the things that kept showing up were, first and foremost, the whole December 25th thing. They very fraudulently claim that a lot of gods have their birthdays on December 25th, and that is just not true. It's a total fraud, not true in any case. And in a number of the examples that they cite in this movie, you can, with a very simple Google search, get out there and discover that, no, no, the, the whole December 25th thing is not a thing. It's a significant day in the pagan calendar. It's a few days after the solstice, and in certain pagan traditions, it is referred to as Midwinter's Day. And there are various significances based on whatever your tradition may be. But uh, the whole thing of December 25th, I mean, it's even fraudulent in Christianity. Right. And there are plenty of evidences that if Jesus had actually existed, that he probably wasn't born anywhere near December 25th anyway. So another one that comes up a lot in their analysis of things is the concept of virgin birth. And there are a couple of stories out there that from certain angles can be viewed as virgin birth stories, but most, if not all of them deal with, you know, quote unquote, normal right. births of these people. Okay. Not virgin births, nothing supernatural about them, but in the movie Zeitgeist, it's a cut and paste bullet point, And that's a problem. And then there's the whole notion of the number of disciples. They talk about a bunch of different gods or god people having 12 disciples. And that's also not true at all. Not all Christ archetypes had 12 followers. And I can't think of a single example of one where that particular number is cited as the number of disciples that the Christ figure or the god hero man had. All of the above are, however, plot devices used in some archetypal stories. Here's another quick quote from the Ranker article. There are still similarities between Jesus and other gods, suggesting that the authors of the Bible borrowed myths from other religions. Gee, you think? <laughs> For example, the story of the dying and returning God is considered a pattern or archetype by many, particularly by Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell. The gods Adonis, Tammuz, Osiris, and Dionysus died and were then resurrected. It seems likely that the story of Jesus was following a pattern found in other myths, which in turn were following a common dying and returning god pattern. This suggests that there never was a real historical Jesus. This among many, many other things. Here are some real similarities between other god figures in literature and Jesus. Let's come back to Krishna just for a minute. Some believe that he was the product of a virgin birth, but not likely. There are tie-ins to the story of the Magi and other astrological parallels to Jesus. There is the whole business of the wilderness experience. Um, he is, and this is another one that I think is a little bit shaky because there's disagreement, but in some sources, he's referred to as the lion of the tribe of Saki, whereas Jesus is referred to as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Um, Krishna performed exorcisms and healings, and 
again, in some accountings, there is a type of Last Supper story and the concept of forgiveness of enemies is an imagery in the story of Krishna. So loose ties. But, you know, we're talking about just you know literary devices and tropes. Then there's Odysseus, which I believe to be a huge reach, but but he showed up on a list as part of my research. And I thought that these two things were kind of interesting about him. Yeah. Um, first, the fact that he was a carpenter, like Jesus, and also that he has some pretty good Moses parallels, more so than Jesus, I think. They cite the antics of his dim-witted followers, Odysseus's followers, just like some of the wilderness antics of the Israelites. But some also equate them with the apostles. I didn't see the apostles ever being comic relief or no. doing things that were that were particularly stupid or worthy of ridicule or criticism or whatever. So I see more parallels to the Moses story here than I do Jesus. But I still think it's interesting just from the standpoint of what we've been talking about and how these things just keep showing up. Then there's Romulus, who was born of a Vestal virgin, but did that make her an actual virgin? Oh, who knows? He was apparently assumed into heaven by a whirlwind, which is more Elijah-like than Jesus-like, but of course Jesus did ascend into the heavens at the end after making appearances on earth following his physical death, which is something else that Romulus apparently did. Romulus has also been dubbed as the Quirinus, or triple deity. We talked about Dionysus a little bit a couple minutes ago, but there are a couple of other things that I uncovered here that may or may not be completely true. I did see a couple of sources that said that he was believed to have been put in a manger upon his birth. He was, in fact, a traveling teacher, but more of a motivational speaker kind of teacher. He is said to have performed public miracles, but I think that there was more figurativeness in that part of it than anything else. The whole water into wine concept, a lot of people believe comes from this, but whether or not he literally turned water into wine, that's a subject of debate. But the idea was out there at that point. Right. So why not use it in a story of a messianic figure? Then we have Heracles, who is a son of a god. And it's recorded that Zeus is both the father and great-great-grandfather of Heracles, just like Jesus is essentially his own grandpa, being both, quote, the root and offspring of David, according to Revelation 22.16, and part of the triune God, which is the father of Adam and eventually of Jesus. And, you know, I know that just, it sounds like word salad. Yeah. It does, it makes sense. Just play back the last minute. <laughs> a couple of times. I, I assure you it will make sense. I had to read that a couple times myself before it actually made sense, but yeah. it does. The parallel is there. So the point of all of that, you know, I could have just skipped all of that and simply said that both are doubly related to the Supreme God, but now you know how. Heracles also has the whole descending into hell trope going for him, but he was far from the only Greek god who visited Hades. So, you know, that's, again, thin, but it's there. Then there's Glycon, who was also a son of a god, Apollo. He came to Earth through what was considered to be a miraculous birth. Didn't say necessarily virgin birth, but miraculous. He was the quintessential god-man or earthly manifestation of divinity. His birth was a fulfillment of divine prophecy that they just had to read back and write the story around. And he apparently was able to give his believers the powers of prophecy, glossolalia, a.k.a. speaking in tongues, performing miracles, healing the sick, and raising the dead. So I 
immediately thought of the verse that said, if you believe in me, you'll do all the same things that I've been doing and even greater things than these. That was the first thing that popped into my head when I saw that. Then there's Zoroaster, 6th century BCE, folks, okay? A lot of people seem to think that Zoroastrianism is a new-ish religion. Um, no, it really isn't. It predates Christianity by quite a bit, by about 600 years, okay? And his story includes an immaculate conception. It includes him being baptized in a river, starting his public ministry around age 30, he performed exorcisms and healings and other public miracles and and promised a second coming. So even if there are a couple of things in there that are a little bit off, I think that last one is yeah, very, very interesting. interesting. And just the fact that these things all kind of come together around another God man, yeah. I find to be very interesting. This was the one, this and second to last one is Addis. And this was the one, the one, that got almost all the bullet points shaved away from because yeah. most of it was zeitgeist bullshit. <laughs> but the one thing that I found interesting about this and that I was able to find in more than one source was that apparently upon his death, Addis turns to bread and his followers are able to eat him, oh. eating the flesh of their god. So okay. could that have been a precursor to communion? There was also stuff in Egyptian tradition yeah. that really coincides well with the whole thing of communion. So there's plenty that goes even further back than this. But, you know, I, I found it interesting from the standpoint of the concept of eating the body and blood of Christ, which some Christian denominations, particularly the Catholics, take to a pretty wild extreme. Mm. But if this part of Addis's story is actually true in terms of what's written about him, it's significant and it's really, really interesting. Now, the one that Zeitgeist really, really liked to zero in on and focus on was the story of Horus. And their accounting of this is absolutely rife with lies and embellishments and deception. So let's take a look at this story from a little bit more of a practical perspective. The problem with coming up with something that is 100% true and factual here is that so many of the details have become skewed over time. We could literally take hours showing how much of Horace's story doesn't parallel Jesus and debunking things that have been said about him that have later been proved to not be true just based on the documentation that we have and the stories about him that exist that we can pick up and read at least in, you know, in the context of reading it in English. You're not going to get the full, complete, or accurate story if you don't understand the original, but you can get the general idea. There really is only one traceable parallel with a smattering of other similar literary tropes that show up in a lot of ancient hero and savior stories. And here's how thin that one parallel is. Herod tried to have Horus murdered. Horus's mother is told to, quote, come thou goddess Isis, hide thyself with thy child. In much the same way that an angel tells Jesus's father to, quote, arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt. Sorry, Peter Joseph, that is the only mm. parallel that exists between Horus and Jesus. And boy, is it a stretch. And 
since I mentioned hero tropes, and I, I'm going to get right off the whole Horus thing, because if there was one thing that really pissed me off when I started going out and looking for the truth behind what they were saying in this movie, this was the first thing that I was able to very thoroughly debunk. And just like I've said before on this show and what I was taught when I was going through school, when you sit for a true or false test, if any part of the statement is false, the whole thing is false. Right. So you lie to me about one thing, the whole thing is a fucking lie. And Mm. I'm going to reject it outright and go look for the truth. And the truth is that little thing that I just read back is the only parallel. So let's get off Horace and let's talk just for a minute about hero tropes since I've brought this up a couple of times now. There are some that can be found in multitudes of stories that long predate the account of Jesus, but were told as a means to similar ends. These types of things do show up in God-man stories throughout history. They show up in hero and savior tropes all the time, but not to the extent that zeitgeist would like you to believe so yes there have been other accounts of god men being born of virgins there have been some that have been referred to as the only begotten son of a god there are some out there whose birth was allegedly announced by a star or other zodiac or astrological tie-ins the lowly birth and meager existence trope is a big one Because really, who doesn't like a good underdog story? Then there's the performing exorcisms and healings and other public miracles. That shows up a lot because it was an easy way to demonstrate that this character had power. There's persecution and eventual execution for threatening religious or political convention. That's another big one. Then there's the descent into the underworld trope, which happens a lot in Greek mythology, just like I said a minute ago. And the whole notion of death and resurrection, which does show up more than once, just not as much as some people would like you to believe. And it is, in my opinion, in things like this, looking at one piece of literature and seeing more in it than there is to be seen, where the real danger in belief in anything without proof lies. We're told that the Bible is the word of God. And as Christians, we are supposed to accept this and deal with the Bible accordingly. We're told that there are no contradictions in the Bible when, in reality, if you turn to the first page, you'll find several even before you get through the creation myth, and it just snowballs from there. We're told that the stories in the Bible are literally true. These people lived, and they actually, factually did all these things. We grow up being taught this, and as adults, we just accept it. The problem is that it's easy to accept things like zeitgeist. Why? Because the psychology tricks that evangelicals play on you to get you to believe the Bible also work when presented with conspiracy that goes counter to what you've been taught to believe. I bought into zeitgeist because it was presented in a way that I had already been taught to think and they knew it. And while I have no problem with aggressive anti-evangelism and evangelical deprogramming in a consensual setting, I have a huge problem with weaponizing psychology to replace lies with more lies. And as I've said many times before, the Bible is rife with fodder for open criticism. Why resort to embellishment, lies, and deception to make our point? And like I said in the beginning, I even had to vet and revet lots of the bullet points I made for each section, particularly the ones related to Jesus, because 
I figured out doing research that a scary number of sources pull from the same information that Zeitgeist and its questionably monikered author did. Even Bill Maher has some of the same information about Jesus in his documentary, Religious, that is found in Zeitgeist, which I find to be more than a little irresponsible and lazy in terms of research. I'm pretty sure I weeded out all the misinformation, but feel free to call me out if I still made some mistakes. We're about truth on this show, not selling our opinions. That's Peter Joseph's job. Right. But, but even if I still let something through that might be a little factually challenged, the point that I want you to take away from this message tonight is this. Good stories and elements of good stories keep coming back around, whether intentionally plagiarized or just bearing similarities of other stories. These devices and tropes keep coming around for several reasons. They get people's attention, they have high levels of relatability, and they either entertain or frighten depending on the intent. Any roller coaster enthusiast or horror movie addict will tell you that those two things can and do show up together from time to time. Is the Bible a complete fabrication? I wouldn't go that far. I also wouldn't put it past two people centuries apart from coming up with some of the same basic concepts and storytelling devices. How many of the same stories have we seen in movies just mm. decades apart? Right. You know what I mean? Now, do I think the Bible plagiarized a lot of this shit? Most definitely. I've said it before, too. These people understood how people think. Just because they were primitive doesn't mean they were stupid. They knew a lot about psychology. They just didn't know that's what it was at the time. They latched onto devices, tropes, and story themes that they knew would grab and hold people's attention. And I'm sure they borrowed a lot of the stories they told from other cultures based on the audience those stories appealed to when they were new. This was long before copyright and long before a majority of people were even literate. What this means for us today is that we should be weighing what we know about the Bible against what we intend to believe about it. If any part of it is misrepresented, you have to reject it in full. In my opinion, the minute you dub something the all-authoritative word of God and plagiarize just one story and swear it's both original and literally true, you're done. You can't call something true if its foundation is one of lies and deception. And that is what the Bible is at its core. Here's an idea for you. Start looking into the origins of some of these stories from the standpoint of free thought. Learn about the cultures who told them first. Some of those stories actually did have very noteworthy moral and social messages, even if they were clouded by theism. From a purely secular and anthropomorphic standpoint, I think learning more about them would be a fascinating way to build on our understanding of people and its understanding that leads to us getting and staying unbound. hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. <laughs>